0: Thank you and uh, hey so we do have one new addition to the church who can't accept this person into our church membership as of yet but Shale would you want to show off a little addition that came out of nowhere Shale and Courtney just adopted um, out of the blue the best she'll ever be on stage (laughs) that's it, that's it, look at that Tells your name, anything like weight and whatever statistics you got for her. I guess. <laughs> Courtney, where's Courtney at? <laughs> she was four pounds, eleven ounces. Um, Audrey Elise is her name, and she came home from the NICU on Thursday. Awesome. So wow. that's cool. That's a good one. Can you imagine a month ago not knowing you're going to be adopting? And walking in like boom, here it is. <laughs> you know, uh, as we look at today's message again, um, we're going to walk through uh, walk through a psalm, one particular psalm, and I we'll always like to explain what the psalm means, what it's about, but also what they do with it. So this particular psalm, in Psalm 57, if you want to go to your Bibles in Psalm 57, turn them on there if you'd like, or you can just follow with me up here. We're going to see this psalm is, is a continuation of Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is really dark. Um, this describes David as he's trapped in a cave. He's being pursued by King Saul. He's being pursued. He goes into this cave, and he's hiding out. He's, he's there with his men. We don't know how many... I can't, well, we, we might know. I just can't remember how many he's in there with. It can't be more than a few hundred. And meanwhile, King Saul is out there with an army of thousands pursuing and pursuing constantly David. David doesn't, is a place where, trust me, he does not deserve to be on the run. He's being pursued by an ungodly king. David is being pursued and is chased into this cave Um, How many of you have been to the Middle East? How many of you have been to the Middle East? Uh, Some of you have been to Israel? Has anybody been to Israel? Show off. (laughs) How does a former intern get... I haven't even been to the Holy Land experience in Orlando yet. (laughs) It's just not fair, man. The natural order of things. Um, But uh, anyway, we... um, it, from what I've heard of stories about these these caves in Israel, is they're deep. Uh, they are incredibly large. Uh, these caves are places where the modern um, Israeli Air Force actually parks their fighter jets in these things. There's enough provisions in some of these caves to last years to hold twenty and thirty thousand people. These caves are gigantic. So David goes to this cave, it's going to be a safe, secure place. It's going to be a place that branches off into different caves and, uh, and, and other areas. This isn't like a, 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 you know, a movie where we see a bear hiding out, hanging out in front of a cave where you can walk 10 feet in. There he is. This, this thing is incredibly deep. He is hiding out for his, the risk of his life being taken. And where he's hiding out in this cave, he believes to be his refuge. And so he writes some psalms regarding this In fifty-six, Psalm 56 is incredibly dark God they're encircling me they're, they're, they're wanting to pounce on me they're wanting to kill me they're wanting to crush me and then Psalm 57 comes in now if you look in your Bible you'll see at the beginning of Psalm 57 is an introduction. It says here to the choir master according to do not destroy a midcam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. What does this mean exactly? It means this is instructions of how to put it to music. This was put to three other psalms in which they sang do not destroy, which I don't know the tune of it. Um, maybe we get the, the, the score for you there, Jim, he was tickled ivories on it one day and I can't imagine what it would sound like, but it is a, it is a, it's a, song that's being written to these particular words and, and, uh, and so this is something the early church would have, would have been singing. They would have had this music, they'd have been singing this, and what's interesting is you're going to watch how it unfolds and what David is going through, um, and if you would go ahead and look with me. Actually, before I say look with me, Tyler and Summer, you guys, welcome back. First time first time in here as a married couple. Yeah. So anyway, we're, we're excited about you guys. You just got back from Thailand, uh, two-week almost two-week honeymoon. Wow. And you see did you change clothes since you got back? So anyway, no. So anyway. Uh, so anyway, it's good to have you guys back. And um, and if you would look with me in verse one, it says here Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. One more time, I'm going to read that, so no distractions. Here it is. Here it is, sorry. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. What does this mean? What does this mean? This This is exactly what it means. God is saying, Lord, or David is saying, God... Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me because he knows what's on the outside. He says, my soul takes refuge in you. He does not mention, by the way, he's taking refuge in a cave. It's something incredibly interesting about this. He makes no mention of the fact that this cave is now his refuge. This cave is a safe place. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame uh, him who tramples me. God will send out this steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. And so he's pouring it out. David's stuck in his cave. He's looking around at his men, and he's pouring out these words and saying, I can't believe where I am. I can't believe what I'm stuck in. He says, um, um, This is what's happening. My soul thirsts for you. Lions of prayer waiting to pounce upon me. He is venting. And this is a classic example in transition. To watch how the next verse just all of a sudden goes from tongues of sharp swords to verse five, you're going to see where it reads: "Be exalted, O God, above all the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth." Here's what it's. Here's what's happening here. There is a transition going from man. Things are really dark. Things really stink. Life is really terrible. To all of a sudden, God, you're great. God, you're, you're majestic. God, you're powerful. This is a classic example of how Christians worshipped prior to us ever getting up here and having a minister look at you with with an open Bible. What did you do? What did Christians do up till the time in which the printed word was in your hands? To walk back a little bit further, you could probably see that in 1850, it was the American Bible Society started putting out Bibles very inexpensively, inexpensively, still somewhat expensively um, to those, I guess, who were buying them. Here's what would happen. You would get a Bible if you were incredibly wealthy, if you were in the world of academia, or if you were a soldier. It's interesting. If you were a soldier in Civil War, you would carry in your haversack the Book of John, the Book of Psalms, and a hymn book. And then it started slowly into World War I was the explosion of the American Bible Society into most every soldier having a Bible, taking it home, being able to share with their families. And then in the 20s, and so of course the depression hit and things were rough, but people started having Bibles in homes. Y'all remember growing up with those big family Bibles? You'd have the big family Bible, open it up, and there'd be lots of pictures in there. And this began the journey of us now coming to the place where we can walk in and we can hold a Bible. We have multiple. How many of us have multiple Bibles? at home, right? You have a lot of them laying around. Well, up to 1850, what did you do? How did you worship? How did you hear from God? And what would happen is you would be called in to worship, you'd be called in, and you would sing songs like this. And here's the pattern. It would acknowledge how rough, tight life is. People would lament, the whole book of the Bible is written on that, and it just, you would lament to God, you would cry out to God, you would say how things stink, you would say how, how I don't know why I'm feeling this way, I don't know why I'm hurting, and then you would start praising God. It was a a time in which this is how you worshipped. And so at the earlier service, when I mentioned to Paul in here, who has his daughter going through pancreatic cancer, I had to think in the back of his mind, he had to be thinking, I hope I can worship today. I hope I can worship today. The reality is, he is worshipping today, just walking in here hurting. That is worship. Don't ever judge worship by being a place of elation or being at a mountaintop where you think everything is fine. Worship walks through the reality of who life is. The reality of this is just something that's horrible, it's, it's terrible, I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. And then you get into the greatness of God. Now, normally, I didn't get a chance to listen to the setup here today, but when there's a full band, they walk through a certain pattern. They walk through a pattern of, of um, acknowledging the greatness of God. And then getting into songs that are more the intimacy with god there 's a direction in this particular direction it was it was oh whoa there 's misery how are we going to make it and then God is great now, I can imagine what what would what would it be like if we sat there and sang these psalms and, sa- and sang misery about this is, this is where life is. It wouldn't be something that an American church would readily identify with. You'd probably think, "Man, this is this is not my kind of joint. I'm out of here. You want to get, you want to bug out." This is this is a style of worship that's directed at one thing—to give you purpose. So there are Sunday school answers I've always called. Meaning, I taught third grade Sunday school a long time ago. I never forget looking at a kid, you ask certain questions, you do certain lead-in questions, and want to get them moving along. And so I say, "Hey, who invented the light bulb?" kid shoots his hand up. He always shot his hand up at everything. They give me the Sunday school answer. He said, Jesus. I said, thank you very much, Timmy. And I said, "Who who did Jesus use to invent the light bulb? Thomas Edison. You know, there's always that easy Sunday school answer that you just want to throw out. And so what would happen is if you were dealing with a non-believer and you're looking at them and they were saying, but, but why do you exist? Why do you exist as a Christian? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you want to aspire to be uh, who you are as a believer? Here's what we would typically say, well, it's to bring glory to God. Have we not used that before? We've said that before. You know, I, well, we just want to live a life that brings glory to God and that's who it is. Well, that sounds good until we wonder what it means. I can guarantee you, every one of us, how about this, every one of you, all of us in here, are layered like an onion with areas of legalism, of pretentiousness, of consumerism when it comes to Christianity. You may not know it. You may think you're the rogue example of, I've made it, I'm not like the others, I really have a Christ-like behavior, but the reality is, each one of us in here are afflicted with something. Something that judges something. I mean, you know, something that... For me, when I was a new believer, and somebody would say, now you can live a life to bring glory to God. And can I tell you, I was never healthy enough to ever articulate it or to question it. But folks, if I could, if I could, you bear with me, I would say this. I had a question in the back of my mind that said this. How... Is that how it's supposed to be now? He created me. He gave me this person, this personality, this emotion. I have emotions where I hurt. I'm happy. I have these things. And now I'm just a pawn? Bring glory to God? Is that my purpose? Is that what I'm all about now? We bring glory to God because we are safest. We are the most alive when we make God the center of our universe. Give me an explanation. Maybe it's a poor analogy. The sun. Let's say we make the sun a person in the sky, the sun in the earth. Let's say the sun were to have the capacity as a person to love the earth. The sun would say, I want you to make me the center point of your existence. One step away from me and you'll freeze to death. One step toward me. Your whole meaning, a whole being will implode. Make me the center of your universe. Revolve around me. And when you do, you'll have life. You'll have purpose. You'll have a place. And that is when God says, "I want you to bring me glory. I want you to make me the center of your universe." It says something that you and I are safest looking at Him as a center of our universe. Then we begin to have purpose. If you were to, um, if you were to go to work tomorrow, New Year's. Eve day, Bob. I know what it's like trying to run a company on New Year's Eve day. It's like herding cats. Probably people aren't w- re- really in the working mode, and they're probably thinking, "Just give me something mundane to do." Now, what if you went in work somewhere and your boss said, uh, "Would you go in that closet and would you go in there?" And there's, a, there's about fifteen or twenty thousand envelopes. If you just search through the contents of those envelopes and if you just arrange them for me, no extra pay. Just make sure it's done. You're going to go through that. You're going to go through that room. You're going to feel like you're living through a mundane purpose. Now, if you say, within the contents of one of those envelopes is a $10,000 Christmas bonus. I can tell you, you will go through that thing with zeal and passion like never before. There's, this, there's something that happens with purpose. Something that happens with purpose. In it. So, which is why when someone says, yeah, I just grabbed the Bible just wanted to read it. And I, just, I didn't know where to jump in. Purpose Needs to drive who we are. Bringing glory to God is who in, in, in who in everything we do. You know, doctors have always said that a doctor who looks at the woman and says, uh, "I can guarantee you what's going to happen based on this report," you're going to gain eight to ten inches in your waist. You're going to gain thirty pounds, and see if that doctor doesn't get punched until you tell the lady that she's pregnant, and then all of a sudden there's a different meaning behind the diagnosis. There's a different meaning behind what's being said. The purpose when you walk in here is in within your heart. The purpose of you, understanding the purpose of you and God is deep within each of you. When I say to you, you are here to make God the center of your universe. You can think of it from a consumeristic standpoint and say... God, I have no desire. What are you talking about? Like I have I have enough problems going on. Or you can look at God and say, God, by making you the center of my universe, I'm the safest there. I'm more alive there. And so what's interesting in this is when you look at what verse do we stop? Look at verse six. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. Selah. Verse 7. My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Now stop right here and think. There's something interesting. Nowhere in here, nowhere does he say, God, I want you to vindicate my name. I'm in here unfairly. He doesn't say, I want you to lead me out of here with all the right and all the power that I have to go out and say anything and do anything that should be fair. He doesn't say anything in here, I want you to fix it. I want you to fix this mess I'm in. He says, none of that. None of that. The entire time he's saying this, this is my situation, as bad as it stinks, God, I'm relying on you. I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in your greatness. And so you and I have an opportunity to evaluate our lives without people on the outside trying to kill us. You and I have the ability to look within our lives and ask ourselves, God, why am I in the place I'm in? Each one of us has different refuges. You could have it in your bank account. Some of you could have a, an incredible amount of wealth. That's what you could rely on. You rely on that and you say, this is my security. Some of you could say, my security is in my name and my reputation. Some of you could say, my security is in my education. Some of you could say, it's your security and your reputation. God will do something very simple to you if you make refuges outside of God. He'll destroy them. He'll do it in a way, sometimes it is gentle. And sometimes he'll do it in a way that is sudden. But in any case, those of us who design and we make refuges, these place, a place of refuge from those things that are attacking us, and we end up making a place of resistance to what God can do. Because if you're not careful, you'll make the mistake we see over and over and over generationally and it's getting more than we can bite off and chew. I watch couples who walk through and, and maybe get a bigger home than they can afford. And it, what does it do? The greatest blessing they want becomes the greatest trap. There's nothing like building your own noose, folks, and your own gallows. And then I, I remember uh, being a college minister for so long, I'd see a 19-year-old pull up in a car, and I'm looking at the car, and I'm like, wow, that's a nice car. Like, how, how much was that? It was like $30,000. is a great deal. I was like, $30,000, 30000 yeah, and uh, how much are you making now? I'm up to ten fifteen an hour. You know, I'm like, oh wow, that's gonna. What was the, what were the, what was the rates on that? Like, oh, it was like crazy. It's first time, you know, like ten percent interest. You know, ten and a half percent or whatever. And you know, over seven years, but they said they stretch it out to eight because they they liked me. And and um, and the car's only got twenty thousand miles on it. We, you know, and you just sit there and think, whoa, you're gonna be at a place. I'll see you in. About three or four years in a Bible study and you're on your prayer request is how do I get rid of this car without running into a telephone pole or whatever and and you see the mistakes being made. Why? Because that was the refuge for that nineteen year old kid was that car. Now not all of you have been there because I've known some of you at nineteen. But this nineteen year old was there. Or some of you. You bought your own refuge, bought your own cave. You bought your own place where you could go to and say, "This is my place of safety. No one will judge me because I have this. No one will judge me because, well, I've made it. I can be compared to others. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine for a moment's time um, what was what I would have been like had I grown up under the scourge of modern day social media. I can't imagine growing up in that kind of comparison. It was bad enough." Being a teenager in the 80s, just trying to compete with the cool movies that were coming out and all the great music and you know, and, and wanting a, uh, a fast car or whatever, and I suppose it was that way in the decades before. But now, it's a daily journey of like, well, they're eating at that restaurant, let's go eat at that restaurant. They're getting the house, let's get that house. I mean, it's never been as common now as for a place of comparison. So more and more people are finding caves. The problem is, they're blaming the cave, they're blaming the refuge. They're looking around and saying, this place is what's bringing me under. The car payment's dragging me under. The house payment's dragging me under. This is, this is not how it's designed to be. And so here in our life, we look at this and we think we have an opportunity to look at David who's stuck in a cave he didn't deserve to be in. He ran into to hide from this king. And what does he do? He glorifies God. There's a quote I hope I didn't find it, because I forgot the last, um, here it is, I forgot the last service, but Ariel, you have it? It's by uh, J.I. Packer, and it says this, here it is, I think we have it up here. If it is right for man to have the glory of God as his goal, can it be wrong for God to have the same goal? If man can have no higher purpose than God's glory, how can God? If it is wrong for man to seek a lesser end than this, it would be wrong for God to. The reason it cannot be right for man to live for himself as if he were God is because he is not God. However, it is not wrong for God to seek his own glory because he is God. Isn't that amazing? How do you get that smart? I should have a teleprompter one day back there. Just blow your minds and talk like J.I. Packer or C.S. Lewis. But you know what's interesting is this. God's glory... When God says, I want you to glorify me, it's so that he can glorify you. He can do amazing things in you. And so when I look at these refuges that we've had in our life and I think, what happens when they collapse? Two things either happen. You get eaten alive Or there's a rescue and you walk out and God is so great and you recognize that God is there. You and I as believers have an opportunity to understand that whatever refuge we have been stuck in, we've been put in, or that we have built is not our final place. Folks, that is a tomb. That's not a refuge. And so I want to encourage you with this. I want to encourage you with these verses. And when I look at these verses, I keep thinking, this is a man who, had, who, was, at, who was at his wit's end. Look with me at uh, verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And that's it. Those are the verses. Those are the verses where he just simply cries out and he says this. He's like, God, I just as bad as it is, I bring glory to you. As bad as it, as it is, I say, God, you are my refuge. I went from the cave of being my refuge to the refuge of this place being, a, uh, this place being only a resting spot. Uh, you, some of you saw that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Monroe, you stayed awake the whole time. Jeffrey, your favorite movie. And, um... There was a crew of us that went there that day. What's always amazed me about that movie was this. was It was made in 1946 or 47, something like that. There was a scene in there where the main, air, main character, played by Jimmy Stewart. What was his name again? The, the actor's name? I mean, the, 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 the name? Bailey? Bailey? George Bailey, right? George Bailey has a meltdown moment. I mean a meltdown moment. It's a moment that if you filmed in 2018 would still be riveting. This was a moment in 1946 or 47 where you did not film breakdowns of people in, in a movie palace. He walks into this room. The kids playing a piano. The baby's crying. Another kid's saying something. And he just absolutely starts screaming. He starts throwing things. He goes in this rage. This is, by the way, a World War II hero, a guy who had been uh, who had made the movie "Mr. Smith Goes to Washington." America's sweetheart of an actor, and he has an absolute mental breakdown on screen, throwing things, grabs his kid, pulls it in, and some of the finest acting just bawling his eyes out in frustration. And it is one of the most uncomfortable scenes in a movie that's building up, building up, building up and nothing but laughter and hilarity. Then all of a sudden, here is a scene and you're wondering, what is happening? Why is this scene so uncomfortable right now? Because it was filmed in this raw, unadulterated fashion to show what a breakdown looks like. And then at the end... We all feel good, not to give away the end if you haven't seen it, but a miracle happens and the town comes back to help. But when he walked in and he broke down, I suppose if you were to stop the production of that and you're to look around and ask people, why is he breaking down so well? Why is he acting it out so well? It's because it was a breakdown of so much. It was a breakdown of so much in his character. It was a... A character that, was, that gave his life for the town, gave his reputation above his family, that did everything he could, everything he could to have a good name. And then all of a sudden, it was going to go nowhere. It was being taken away. And that man, in that moment, in that great acting scene, let it show. What's interesting is this you can choose a place of refuge. Or God can choose it for you. His place of refuge is much healthier. His place of refuge is much brighter. His place of refuge is one that doesn't break. And so when David is saying this, he says this, God, I came in here for the refuge to be saved so I'm not attacked and I'm not killed. And God, I'm now calling you to be my great and mighty refuge. I saw a movie with my dad the other day. Um... My dad's dad, my grandpa, was a World War I veteran. And Mitchell, I'm sorry, you've got to hear the story again because I told you all about the movie. Kenneth and Shannon, you guys went to it, right? It was a movie called They Shall Not Grow Old. And it was a fascinating movie. And it was only out for one day in November and one day in December. So you have to come to my house now to get on DVD. But what it was fascinating about was the guy who directed Lord of the Rings was given a task by the Imperial War Museum in London. And they said, would you direct a a documentary on World War I? Um, And we have eight hours of footage. Here you go. Do something. And And they said this as he's walking out the door. Would you be creative? And so he said he flew back to New Zealand. Here he knows two words, be creative, be creative, be creative, what do I do? And so he did something, he got home, he t- you've never seen World War I footage, they move very quickly, right? It's only shot on so many frames compared to what it should be now, and, and so the people move very quickly, it's in black and white, it's very dark, or very light, it's hard, there, there's no humanization of the people. So we got back, got to the studios, used computer imagery and, and all the kind of help they could do, and they slowed down the production. The, the production became very slow, was very fluid, as if people were walking in a normal pattern and talking in a normal pattern. He said, this is not enough. He went and flew over to Europe and to the different battlefields, looked around, saw the different greens that were in Belgium and France, and began to look at the different green in the grass and, and then the uniforms. And, he, and they brought color. I mean, not just, oh, I think they were wearing a red sweater, like we see in movies that are made up in color. No, are in black and white to be color. No, he recreated a life all of a sudden and made it colorized. And then it wasn't enough. He brought in experts that could read lips. He brought in experts, and Courtney, you're a lip reading expert, by the way. I've got a little short story. I was at Applebee's with her. You were probably 19 years old, 18 or 19. Courtney, because of her hearing impairment, couldn't read lips incredibly well. I saw a couple, three booths down. I sat down at, uh, at, at Applebee's with her one day and I said, that couple's really hurting. Can you look over? She said, yeah, I can tell you exactly what's going on. And she read the, and, and I'm like, all right. So anyway, you all start talking about me. Courtney will bust you. So they brought in people that, ta- that read lips. And so then what they did was they discovered, all right, this unit was from Sussex in England. And they went to Sussex, went to the coal mines, got a 19-year-old kid, brought him to the studio, recorded what the person was saying so all of a sudden you're at the movie it's unfolding in black and white imagery everybody's choppy everybody's moving around very quickly and then it transforms into color and all of a sudden the sound comes in horses in the background tanks clattering people talking accents and this dehumanization becomes alive all of a sudden it's alive and you look at it and it's life these people had faces they had voices they were someone god has done that in countless times in you and i we felt like we were in a script and walking around as if nobody was as if we really weren't a part of anything anymore and god and we look around sometimes and we feel like if you ever want to go to new york city and look at the hordes of people walking around and think how could i ever identify then all of a sudden god paints a picture and they come alive. When I go to New York, people always say, oh, New York City, people are rude. People never, actually, they're not. I've never really experienced, I may mean, be a couple of obnoxious people, but I mean, I've never experienced anybody really rude. You sit on a subway and you talk to someone, and they talk to you. It's amazing, in the rush of life, you can have an oasis of a conversation that quickly. And the reality is, is this. They have found their refuge in isolation and silence. I won't look at you. I make my world my world. In Tokyo, you go to Tokyo, you get on a subway, nobody talks. Nobody, the train is the quietest thing you've ever seen. They find their refuge in their culture. They are all one. They wouldn't show their individualism. We each, each one of you and I have a cave that we live in, multiple caves. Your personality, how you dress, your home. Your abilities, your treasures, your resources, those caves, those refuges that that, that you have, you have to ask God into each and every one of them. And then there are moments, there are moments that certain few people are called to walk into a cave, called to walk into a place of uncertainty. Can you imagine? Think with me real quickly. And I'm not trying to rewrite David in a psalm. But think of this. Imagine that David walked into that cave singing the latter part of the psalm. I guarantee he ran in there in fear. Guarantee it. But can you imagine him walking into that dark cave saying, God, you are my stronghold. You are my fortress. And there's nothing that can come into this cave that can harm me. Can you imagine that kind of strength? Well, there is a man that I'm going to have come up here who used to be a student. And then became a friend and now is a, is a hero to me.